Welcome back to the Der Show. Um, today we deal with one of the most complex problems faced by America, uniquely America. Uh, the problem of the easy availability of guns and what impact it has or doesn't have. People have different views on this, on the mass killings that we've now seen in two California cities. And while we're on that, we also have to talk about the six-year-old boy who shot and nearly killed his teacher willfully and deliberately, whatever that means in the context of a six-year-old, but it wasn't an accident, aimed the gun and th had threatened the teacher and then shot and barely killed the teacher. I'm not sure what the situation of the teacher is right now, but she was in very, very critical uh, condition. Um, and of course, the people who were killed in California and injured. Um, the debate is ongoing um, at two extremes. You have um, people who will take all the guns away from everybody, try to disarm America, ignore at least the current meaning of the Second uh, Amendment, and believe that if you take all guns away from everybody, suddenly we'll become like Japan and England. Um, not very many uh, gun, gun killings in either of those countries or most other countries in the world. On the other side, you have the equally extremist, um, I would like to think of a stronger word for them, people who say uh, don't touch current laws, don't take away any guns. People can have automatic uh, guns. You can have war weapons. You can have the kind of guns that you know, fire uh, dozens and dozens of rounds per second. There should be no limits on, on guns at all, and we shouldn't have any um, registration time or any period of investigation. Uh, those two extremes. Now, if I were God or George Washington uh, and were about to create a country, um, a lot of you will disagree with this, I might very well create a country without any guns. I mean, could you ever do that? It's hard to know. Um, I don't like guns. Um, I wish that uh, no private citizens uh, ever owned a gun. If, if I could, if we didn't have a constitution, I would say if you have to hunt, which I hate too, I don't like hunting, though, you know, these are my personal views. I could never sit and aim a gun at a deer and pull the trigger and, and kill it or even a squirrel. I just couldn't do it and I wouldn't do it. Um, but if you have to have hunting, you know, you can have the guns stored at the hunting facilities. Countries have that. Many countries have it. And they're decent countries and they're freedom loving countries and they're not tyrannies. And uh, in fact, the vast majority of countries in the world have very, very, very significant bans on guns. And if, if I could create a country, now I say create a country because it has to be from scratch. I'm not sure I'd adopt that rule today when there are more guns in the United States than there are people. Um, and, and so passing laws may not have a major impact on anything. It may just take the guns away from law-abiding people, <clears throat> keep the guns in the hands of people who don't care about the law. So as I said, if I could create, uh, you know, on the seventh day, God rested, and on the eighth day, he took away the guns from everybody. Uh, I think it was Sigmund Freud who once said that civilization began on the day the first human being hurled an insult instead of a spear. You know, I believe in Isaiah, uh, turn your your, seer, your your spears, your 
your swords into plowshares. If we could do that, if we could, you know, have a John Lennon utopia, let's just have peace. I'm, I'm on that side. But we have a constitution and the constitution has an amendment called the Second Amendment, one of the worst drafted amendments in the history of draftsmanship. But there it is. I'll read it to you just because we're going to spend some time understanding it and interpreting it and seeing whether it provides for any rational intermediate solution to this terrible problem that divides America and, in my view, results in killing people that would otherwise not have been killed. So the Second Amendment reads as follows. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Let's start with a few things. A well-regulated militia. Who regulated the militias? A well-regulated militia meant regulated by the states. The states with a small s. States. The states regulated the militias. Massachusetts had its militia. Virginia had its militia. They had areas where guns were kept. And the militia was called out by church bells ringing or by criers running through the town. And the people in the militia would then go to the arsenals or magazines or whatever they were called back in the day, pick out their rifle that would fire one shot, uh, maybe two shots, um, and then gather and be re well regulated by the sergeant or the captain or whoever. So a well-regulated militia meant a state militia regulated by state law. That is a fact. There's no disputing that. There was no federal militia. There was a big fight between Hamilton and Jefferson, as usual. Hamilton, the Federalist who wanted to see a much stronger central government, was not opposed to a standing United States uh, Army, um, and Jefferson was. Jefferson was a big supporter of state militias. The Jefferson view prevailed, and there was no uh, federal militia. There was a militia perhaps in the you know, District of Columbia, which was treated <coughs> in some ways as a state after it was established as the capital, not right in the beginning of American history, but by the early days. So we start out with a well-regulated militia. So the Constitution gives the states the power to regulate its militia, including the power to regulate how guns get into the hands of the militia. So if a militia was established by Massachusetts and Massachusetts had a state statute saying members of the militia have to come to the magazine or the arsenal to get their guns and only people over the age of 18 who have uh, had no criminal record could be members of the militia, that would be consistent with a well-regulated militia. I challenge anybody to doubt or raise doubts about that aspect of it. So a well-regulated militia meant regulated by the states, by the states and well-regulated in terms of gun use and gun possession. Doesn't mean that people outside the militia didn't have the right to have guns. We'll get to that in a minute. If the Second Amendment really wanted to just simply give every citizen the right to have and own and 
bear uh, arms, it would have been very simple. They could have written a much shorter amendment. It would have just said, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be prohibited. It doesn't say that. First, it doesn't say prohibited. It says infringed. And we'll talk about the difference between prohibited and infringed in a minute. But before we get to that, we get to the fact that the amendment gives a reason. And the amendment creates a limitation. It doesn't just say the right of the people to uh, keep and bear arms shall not be prohibited or infringed. It says because, doesn't use the word because, but that's the way grandma requires us to read this. It says because a well-regulated militia is essential to the security of a free state. By the way, state is capitalized, and I don't think it means state like Massachusetts or state like New York. I think it means a free government. I think the state is used generically, um, a free people, a free government, a free state. So we have an amendment that's confusing. It has a clause, and usually clauses like that are part of the interpretation. For example, the Fourth Amendment is like that. It has a similar clause. It says, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, and papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. So it sets out the reason for it, and no warrants shall issue. So we understand what the purpose of that amendment was. It was to protect the people, their houses, their papers, and their effects from unreasonable searches and seizures. And so we know that the purpose of the Second Amendment has something to do with well-regulated militias. Now, does that necessarily mean that if a state doesn't have a militia at all, that nobody would have a right to own guns? No, it, it doesn't say that. It could easily have said, just like it could easily have said, uh, well, that uh, the right of the people shall not be uh, infringed. It could easily have said, you know, that um, the people, uh, if they're outside the militia, have no right to bear arms. Only militias have the right to it. Only because a well-regulated militia is essential. We we um, we need to have the right to bear arms. They didn't say that either. Uh, as I said, C minus in draftsmanship. It could so much easier. You know, there's a cartoon I have on my on my wall in New York. And it has the framers of the Constitution, and uh, they're standing around saying, let's have a little fun. Let's make the words of the Constitution really hard to understand and ambiguous. And, of course, they did that. They didn't do it to have fun. They did it because they're human beings and because human beings are incapable of writing uh, with uh, absolute uh, perfection and without ambiguities. And, of course, many of the Phrases in the Constitution are subject to ambiguous interpretations, and some of them deliberately, equal protection of the law, due process of the law, uh, cruel and unusual punishments. Those, those are there to be interpreted and maybe to change with the times, but there are other provisions that are just ambiguous because of really bad, really bad draftsmanship. Again, the Fourth Amendment is, is one of them. It says um, the right of the people 
against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And so here we have, have three words, violated, infringed, and prohibited. In the first four amendments of the Constitution, we have three different words describing what powers the state has. Uh, so here we have in the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people against unreasonable search shall not be violated. And then it says, and, and, and it doesn't say therefore, it says, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause. So, so, so does that mean that um, the, the warrant requirement is part of the unreasonable searches or is it a separate and independent thing in the course of interpreted it various, various ways. I mean, the Eighth Amendment is extremely, extremely vague. Um, excessive bail shall not be required. But does that mean you have to give bail? Or just if you give it, it can't be excessive. Courts today deny bail. Is that a violation of the Constitution? Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines. What is an excessive fine? Um, you know, the Constitution provides that in every civil case involving $20, you get a trial by jury. $20 in those days was like $500. So what does that mean? What does excessive fines mean? Excessive by the standards of the day, $20, or excessive by today's standard, $20,000. And then, and cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So it has to be both cruel and unusual. It doesn't say cruel or unusual. It says cruel and unusual. And what does that mean? Uh, and and, and the, even the word punishment has been interpreted by the Supreme Court to mean it only applies to formal sentences imposed by the judge. If a jailer uh, treats uh, an, an inmate or a prisoner horribly, that's not under the Eighth Amendment, according to Justice Thomas and other justices. So, you know, the Constitution is filled, filled, filled with ambiguities. And so let's continue to go back to the Second Amendment. Um, the word infringed. The word infringed is a little less powerful than the word prohibited. Prohibited sounds like an absolute prohibition. Um, violated may sound absolute. Infringed sounds a little bit more like a matter of degree, compromise, uh, gone into. Does that give the state a little bit more power to curtail, limit, uh, infringe upon the right to uh, bear arms? Um, we don't know the answer to any of those questions. I, as you know, when I defended President Trump and even before that, I read every word of the Constitutional Convention. I read all the debates. I read everything. I mean, I really read everything. And most of this these, of course, were not debated at the Constitutional Convention. They were debated, however, at state constitutional conventions, passing the, uh, the First Amendment, the Bill of Rights. Probably know this is just a little, little, little bit of trivia. Uh, the Bill of Rights originally had 12 amendments. The first two were not passed. They were defeated um, by the states. And so if you read the original copy of the Bill of Rights, and I own the original copy, of the Bill of Rights in the first, second, and third congressional records, which I own, um, um, you'll see that um, Congress shall make no, no law abridging the freedom of speech is the Third Amendment. And a well-regulated militia is the Fourth Amendment, but it gets changed, so they 
became the first and second amendments to the constitution. So for a hundred and something years, uh, more than a hundred years, probably a hundred and probably 150 years, probably 150 years, the vast majority of the time the United States was a, an independent country. The Second Amendment was not interpreted to convey a personal right to own weapons, to carry weapons. It was interpreted only to mean that the federal government couldn't stop the state from having a well-regulated militia which had people carrying arms. That's the way it was interpreted. Now, of course, everybody knows that at the time of the, the framing, people had guns. They had guns to fight uh, off Native Americans who were belligerent against them. They were belligerent against the Native Americans. Uh, um, animals, wild animals. After all, if you, you know, lived in Boston, Massachusetts, and you went out to the Wild West, uh, Worcester, um, you would confront wild animals. And so um, people had guns. The question is, did they have a constitutional right to have guns or did they have guns in the same way they had, you know, outdoor toilets? There's no constitutional provision saying the right of the people to have outdoor toilets shall not be infringed. Just because you have something and it's common doesn't mean there's a constitutional right to have it. Um, in um, most constitutions, I think, I think with the exception of only one other, and I know of only one other constitution that includes a right to bear arms. Among all the probably are, are 150 constitutions in the world today, probably half of them in, in, in reasonable, moderate, uh, liberal democracies, they don't have a right to bear arms. People have guns, but it's not in the constitution. It's regulated by statute. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court has said the Second Amendment doesn't permit. It forbade New York. It forbade Washington, D.C. It forbade other states from well-regulating the guns in that state. It said state statutes that regulate guns are unconstitutional because they infringe on the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Um, the debate has never been resolved, and it probably won't be resolved. For me, a middle ground is appropriate. Um, I would construe this Second Amendment because of the way the Supreme Court has interpreted it. And, you know, if the Supreme Court is wrong, it could be reversed, witness Roe versus Wade. Uh, but I would now say there is a right to bear arms by an individual, by a person, subject to being well regulated by the state. So obviously a six-year-old child, the kind of child who just shot and almost killed the teacher, should not have the right to bear arms and his parents should not have the right to give him guns and all of that should be subject to law enforcement. Mentally ill people shouldn't have the right to bear arms. Uh, people who have committed dangerous crimes, felonies that involve guns or Violence shouldn't have the right to bear arms. The right to bear arms shouldn't include uh, automatic weapons or um, bazooka launchers or tactical nuclear weapons. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, should they be permitted to ban? Should states be permitted to ban semi-automatic 
uh, weapons. That, that's been a, a great debate. And, you know, the problem is, or not the problem, is the reality is that Congress is so much in the hands of the gun lobby and the gun lobby is so much in the hands of gun manufacturers that have an incentive to make and sell guns that it's very rare for Congress to pass a statute and therefore the statutes are not tested in the Supreme Court. The statutes that get tested tend to be state statutes, usually very old ones, like the New York statute, the Sullivan Law, which was restricted by the Supreme Court because it was written in big and, and general uh, terms. So the answer, what can we do, is we can do things. Uh, will it solve the problem? It's not going to cure it. Uh, no matter what the law says, there are too many guns around. Um, do guns contribute to um, uh, shootings, uh, unlawful shootings and killings? Yes, without a doubt. No intelligent person can deny that. You can show me all the data in the world, and the National Rebel Association puts out all this junk data all the time, but you just look realistically. You know, as a senator recently said, the reason we have so much more shooting in the United States um, than we do in Japan and England and, and, and France and Italy is because Americans are crazy. They're crazier. They're more violent. What an insult to America. It's also untrue. There's no psychological data to suggest that American people are more violent and more prone to violence and more prone to mental illness the only variable, the only variable, and you just cannot deny it, the only variable between the United States and these other countries is the easy availability of guns. Now, you, oh, no, no, if you look at two states in the United States, one who has better laws, one who has not so tough laws, you see there's no difference. Of course not, because guns don't respect national state boundaries. People walk across state boundaries, but they do respect national boundaries. If you have restrictions that are national, uh, then um, uh, people don't don't have the ability to come into the country with guns, and they and 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 and, and state laws won't do it. It's a national law that would do it. A national law banning automatic or semi-automatic weapons, except for police or people who have special 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 needs and licenses should, I think, be upheld as constitutional. Now, you know, nobody on Rumble is going to agree with me. Every single letter is going to disagree. And, you know, they're going to say, well, of course, uh, Dershowitz is in favor of restricting guns. After all, he was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. That's the logic that I get in so many of these uh, Rumble, Rumble things. By the way, if any of you are interested, um, there's a new cover on my book, Guilt by Accusation. You know, that's the book that I wrote about the accusation, which I have you know, denied from the moment it was made against me. But this has a new quote on the cover. It says, I now recognize that I may have made a mistake in identifying Alan Dershowitz, Virginia Gouffray, November 8th, 2022. So if any of you are interested, the book still is still available and out there along with 50 others of my books I just now sent to the publisher, number 51 and number 52. And when they come out, I'll be talking about that. Okay. Um, I'm interested to know if any of you take my view, the more nuanced view of the Second Amendment, probably some people from YouTube. Let's see if anybody from Rumble. I don't want to create a war between Rumble and YouTube, but you've got to read my letters. You would not believe the differences. Okay. This is a YouTube letter. Um, 
about my idea of having a technological solution to the classification problem by having an electronic stamp called classified, which can then be easily traced the way when you walk out of a store uh, with a, a sweater that isn't yours, but it has a little tag on it. Beep, beep, beep. You're embarrassed and you have to go back into the store and pay the money. If you can do it with a sweater, you can do it with classified material. And anybody who has a technological objection, if we, you know, we could send the man to the moon, we can do it. We can certainly do that. Good idea, Professor. Proud of an 84-year-old coming up with a technological fix. Now, you know, as I said in my article, I wrote an article about it too. <clears throat> I'm not an expert on technology, uh, but I have what my mother would call sechel, common sense. And my sechel tells me this is an appropriate solution, maybe just an amelioration of a serious problem. So I hope that Congress will think hard, or even the executive branch will think hard, about making it easier to find classified material electronically. It would help the people who don't want to inadvertently take classified material. It would stop the people who want to take it. It's a win-win. I don't see any downside to it except a few bucks, and it's probably not all that expensive in light of the current technology. Okay. Obviously, everybody always takes it to its logical conclusion. How about putting a micro-explosive on classified documents and a detector that sets off the explosive when the document passes through a sensor? Imagine what would happen if someone did a Sandy Burger and tried to smuggle a document out in their underwear. I don't even want to imagine it. I don't even want to think of it. But, you know, obviously, every solution has an exaggerated slippery slope, and this slope is slippery indeed. Okay, Professor Dershowitz, please expand on your opinions about, a, about Alec Baldwin. I think I'm going to do a whole show on that in the next um, week or so, but I think it was an accident. It could have happened to any of us. Um, obviously, there was negligence on the set. We don't know who or many people committed the negligence, but when an actor is handed a gun by the person in charge of props and told, the gun does not have live ammunition. You can shoot it. I just don't see how it's a crime for that to have been done. People argue that because he was also the producer, he had a greater role. But producers vary in their role. They're executive producers that just have their name and a few bucks um, uh, invested. And there are those who are really right there uh, on the scene. We have to know more about that to know whether that's in any way relevant. Professor Dershowitz, uh, watching your show, I'm amazed about your collection. <laughs> I get distracted from your talk, just looking around behind you. What are we going to do with all those things? Uh, just want to know, uh, because I, I do not agree with much of what you say, but dang, you have shown me a lot of the other side. Thank you, and really thank you for standing up for great ideas. Um, I think next week I'm going to do uh, a show in which I show you all of this amazing stuff, ranging from uh, an autograph picture, uh, uh, a picture of uh, you know, a drawing of Thomas Jefferson that was owned uh, by his uh, granddaughter um, uh, and grand and and great you know, grandson and great granddaughter uh, with the interesting name of uh, Benjamin Franklin Randolph. So I have that, and I have an early copy of the Balfour Declaration, which. Um, 
established uh, Britain's um, interest in having uh, a Jewish state uh, in Israel. Lots and lots of interesting stuff. And uh, I'll, I'll show you a selection of them uh, in the show next week. I did one for my New York apartment and a lot of people like that. So I'm going to, I'm going to do it for my Florida apartment as well. Um, okay. And then somebody says, Hey, professor, this relates to both this and what we said before. Was your letter written by George Washington properly declassified before you showed it to us? I don't think it was ever classified. Of course, it was secret. I mean, it would have been treason for uh, anybody to have turned that letter over to the British because it contained secrets about how Washington wanted to position troops. Um, and um, But I don't know if it ever went through the proper classification measures, uh, but I'm not giving it up. I want that letter. I love that letter. It's one of the most important pieces in my collection, a letter by George Washington written in the hand of Alexander Hamilton saying that every single soldier had to be inoculated against smallpox or else basically we'll lose the war to the British, not because of military superiority by the British, but because obviously soldiers with smallpox can't fight. I agree with you, Professor. It's an overreaction to charges to charge anyone with a crime for this. This is the classification. None of these men took it for illegal purposes, such as espionage. Drop all of the cases. Geraldo Rivera brought this up a couple of weeks ago that he thinks this is a big waste. Uh, after he explained, I agreed with him. He was pummeled by the other four Fox News contributors. I changed my mind after what he said. This is not serving the electorate. Uh, you know, that's, I, uh, I think, a common sense view. Again, I don't make many predictions, but I'm going to make a prediction and it's on video and you can show to me if I'm wrong and I'll have to apologize. No, none of these three people, um, Pence, uh, Biden, Trump, are going to be indicted for mishandling of classified uh, material. If more comes out, if there's obviously Nixon-like obstruction of justice, that would be different. But based on the evidence that I've now seen, none of the three of them will be criminally prosecuted. And I hope they accept my view of changing the technology and making it much easier to detect and much harder to accidentally remove information and keeping it uh, in your other files. So um, see you next week.